Hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Nathaniel. I'm going to be preaching in just a moment. Uh, my theme for today is actually about meals. I've got some stuff to set up in order to make that happen. So while I do that, turn someone near to you and say what your favorite nationality of cuisine is. Mine is Mexican, just so you know. <laughs> you and I today, we're going to share a meal together. Well, we're going to have one later on as well with the Nigerian food that you've heard about. And also after this, sermon, we're going to share communion together, which is a meal that Jesus taught us about. And even now in this sermon, we're going to go through some bits and pieces of a meal that's been shared for, I think, about 3,600 years. We're going to be um, sharing some elements of a Passover meal together. Because we've been looking at heroes of the faith, uh, as they were described in the book of Hebrews. And we're on uh, actually our last sermon in that series about Moses. And the passage that we're looking at today is uh, from Hebrews 11, verse 28, which says, By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And there are kind of two halves to this um, bit about Moses here. You've got the second half, the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. We'll cover that later on. But then there's this first half. By faith, Moses kept the Passover. And there's something about the institution of this meal that is uh, worthy of reference in the short synopsis of Moses' life. Um, it was the beginning of this annual tradition of the Passover, which, as I say, has been kept for about 3,600 years. And there's something about the institution of this meal, the oldest cultural feast that's still practiced today, I'm fairly sure, um, that is, as I say, worthy of mentioning. There's something about this meal that brings rescue to the Israelites. There's something about this meal that became a fundamental part of uh, Jewish life, traditions, and the identity of the people of God. Because this meal is not just a meal. You see, meals have meaning. Um, in the States, they have Thanksgiving, which has a long history, and they use that as an opportunity to take stock of their life and think, what do I want to give thanks for today? Um, in Islam, they have Eid al-Fitr, which they use to celebrate the end of their time of fasting. Whereas in the UK, for some reason, we have Pancake Day, where we eat some nice, delicious, thin pancakes to celebrate the start of fasting. Uh, the UK as well, we have uh, our Christmas meals, of course, which everybody will have slightly different traditions and meanings associated with it. And um, Edinburgh students have a particular traditional meal, which is to celebrate the sun coming out, they'll burn some sausages on a disposable barbecue. And we're going to have a church meal today. And I would encourage you to stick around for it because meals have meaning. And this is more than just a chance to sample some delicious Nigerian food. Because when we eat together, we grow together as a community. We get involved in one another's lives. It's, it's, how, it's a part of building a church here in Edinburgh. We eat together. It's something that was encouraged loads in the Bible. Christians should eat together the whole time. Meals have meaning, and the Passover is incredibly meaningful. If you were to go to a Jewish Passover meal today, uh, they call it a seder, and there will be 15 stages of it. Um, don't worry, we're not going to do all 15 today, we're going to do three. Um, it's the three that are actually described in the first Passover. Um, and Jesus, uh, the Passover is particularly meaningful for us because Jesus was at a seder when he created 
the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper or taking the bread and wine. You'll call it different things depending on where you first heard about it. But he used the Passover meal to explain his death and his resurrection to his followers. He chose a meal in order to do that, to, to say, this is what's about to happen and this is what it means. So if you understand the meal, you understand the faith of Moses that he had when instituting this meal. You understand the people of God as it was in the Old Testament. You understand Jesus and you understand the Last Supper some more. So let's read about this first Passover, which is in Exodus 12. And I'm uh, just going to read the first 14 verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male and a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And then the chapter goes on and God actually repeats the instructions to Moses unleavened bread, a lamb without blemish, blood over the doorposts, and the angel of death will pass over you. And then this part of the story ends with God striking down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, bringing the country to its knees and allowing the people of Israel to go free, along with any Egyptians or foreigners that wanted to join them in what was called a mixed multitude. God isn't being arbitrary with the bits of the meal he's instituting here. And he's saying, you're going to celebrate this for generations to come. I'm going to talk about the three parts of the meal that are mentioned. The unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and the lamb, which here today I'm representing with the wine, because that's how we as Christians have come to understand it, since the, the wine represents the blood of the lamb. Also because I couldn't roast the lamb here on stage. I thought about it, but practically didn't quite work out. And then we're going to have our own Passover meal, or the Christian version of it, which is communion. Because this meal is a freedom meal, and it represents three different types of freedom that I'm going to explain through the different pieces. And then we're going to take communion in order to participate in the freedom that God is offering to us.
because Jesus used this meal to explain it. So I think we have lots to learn about the character of God, um, what he offers to us, how Jesus won it for us. So first we have the unleavened bread. Now in a traditional Seder, there would be three pieces and the middle piece you would break to share it. And so actually breaking the bread was already part of the Passover ritual when Jesus did it. He just gave it new meaning. And I'll, I'll come on to Jesus's meaning later on, but the first thing I want to talk about, the first type of freedom that I want to mention is that the Passover is freedom from slavery. The reason the bread is unleavened is because they needed something to eat quickly. And if you add yeast, you have a whole longer um, cooking process. I'm not much of a baker at all. And we have a bread machine, so Natalie tends to chuck the ingredients in and I eat delicious bread later on. But my understanding is that yeast takes extra time in the baking process and probably more so in the days before bread makers and ovens. It's flat to make it cook quicker and it's just flour, oil, water, and you just fry it up, eat it quickly. That's why they ate it fully dressed as well, with their belts on, their sandals on, their staff in hand, because they needed something quickly, because freedom was at hand. Freedom from Egypt, freedom from 430 years of slavery was happening this night. And so they needed faith to eat this food quickly, to get something quick and easy and to eat it with their clothes on because after 430 years, God's saying, this is the night. So they needed to respond in faith that. You wouldn't want to be the one guy who's just like, oh, time to go, oh, sandals on, belt on, staff. You, they, they had to respond in faith. And when we think about slavery, for us, we often turn it into something spiritual, which to be honest, I am going to do for the next stage. But first and foremost, this meal, the Passover, as Moses and the Israelites experienced it then, was about freedom from physical slavery. 430 years of it. God hates slavery. And the Bible is a story of freedom. As I said, the Passover is a freedom meal. And, and what it meant to the Israelites then and how they've remembered it ever since is about freedom from actual slavery and oppression. And you know, the gospel of Jesus is one of freedom from slavery too. Jesus said when he was laying out his mission statement, I have come to proclaim freedom to the captives. And I believe that he did mean that in a literal sense as well. Now that might be quite hard for us as uh, 21st century British Christians to grasp, but actually throughout history, uh, the promise of freedom from slavery has been something that people have clung onto as a hope that Jesus offers his people. Do you know, the slaves in the southern states of America were fiercely dedicated Christians who wrote songs of worship. And for them, the promise of freedom from slavery and oppression was a very real promise. And Sadly, because the world has fallen and broken, so many people wouldn't have realized that until they actually went to glory to be with Jesus, to experience true freedom. 
You know, the Israelites were in slavery for 430 years. That means generation upon generation died in Egypt in slavery. But they knew they had this promise from God that he was going to free them. And the like, enslaved and oppressed Christians throughout history have known that actually one day the whole world will be redeemed. The whole world will be brought into a place of freedom. And actually in the new creation, when Jesus comes, slavery will end entirely. And we as Christians have that hope that a day will come when oppression ends. We live with that tension of the now, we, we experience all different kinds of freedom, and the not yet, where some freedoms will only come when Jesus brings about new creation. But when we take communion, imagine yourself dressed for the next life, as it were, eating unleavened bread, because in the grand scheme of things, you're not stopping here for long. You have a hope beyond this one. And until then, Christians are called to usher in the kingdom of God in so many different ways. And one of those ways is fighting the cause of the oppressed and the enslaved. William Wilberforce, a hero of mine, um, was the political face of the abolition movement in the UK. Um, a country which economically thrived off the backs of slaves for generations. And it was his Christian faith that motivated him to fight for abolition. And he said, a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. Strong words, but I do believe that part of Christianity is a promise for an end to oppression, an end to physical, literal slavery here on earth. And actually, we should be fighting for the cause of the oppressed. The world is full of these people. And the 11 bread in the Passover meal was a reminder to the Israelites Freedom is coming. And in our communion, it should remind us that God is a God of freedom. And the next part of the Passover meal is the uh, bitter herbs, um, which it just mentions in passing that they ate the lamb with the uh, unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. And this is something that I am quite grateful that Jesus didn't put into communion today, that this, this wasn't when he said, this now is what the Passover meal looks like for you. He didn't include the bitter herbs. But actually, it is still part of uh, Jewish tradition today. And it would have been part of the meal that Jesus and his disciples shared every Passover. They would have had the bitter herbs because it's been going on for generation and generation. Uh, some Jewish people today eat romaine lettuce, which feels, I mean, it's the worst lettuce, but it feels like a bit of a cop-out. Um, more Jewish people actually tend to eat horseradish, which is what I've got here. Um, so I think in order to understand the bitterness of these herbs, we're going to actually try some. So uh, Jess Robinson, why don't you come join me on stage? I can, I can smell it from here already. And for solidarity, um, I've, I'm going to have some as well, um, which... Why don't you tear yourself off a piece of that and just go ahead and how much am I going for? Enough that I can still preach afterwards. Um, just, just dip it in. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I think I had too much. How, how is it, Jess? What does it taste like? What's the... Unpleasant? Mm. 
Oh no. I warned you about this as well. I warned you. Here, have some water. Thank you, Jess. Mm. Let me just get rid of that flavor from my mouth. There's a reason that bitter herbs are part of the Passover meal. And it's another representation of slavery. I'm going to put the lid on, otherwise that smell is just going to infect this room. It's supposed to give you that visceral reaction. The intention is to help you remember the bitterness of slavery. And so every time when people have these bitter herbs, it's a reminder, this is what slavery was like. And it's this lingering back of the throat, kind of consuming flavor. And it's important to have that kind of physical, visceral experience of what slavery was like, because cultures generally aren't great at remembering their history. We all too quickly forget what's gone before. That's why history repeats itself over and over again. And so here is an annual reminder. Slavery was bitter. Slavery was horrible. And even then, it didn't necessarily work because it wasn't long for the Israelites before they were saying, do you know what? I think things were better back in Egypt. And you can almost imagine Moses hearing them say that and just going around with the bitter herbs and being like, remember, remember what it was like, that flavor, that, that bitterness, the almost bringing tears to your eyes flavor. That's what it was like for you. And here's where I want to talk about literal slavery becoming spiritual slavery for us in our understanding of the freedom that God has won for for us, for you. Because a lot of the references to slavery in the New Testament are about slavery to the spiritual forces, to sin, to fear. Um, In the New Testament, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, becoming a Christian is an act of surrendering to the rescue of God. God finds you in wretchedness, in miry clay, it says, entangled in sin. It's the habits that you know are destructive. It's the slightly cruel streak in you that you hate in yourself, but you can't quite shake. It's the thought patterns that dictate your entire day. It's the selfish pursuit of pleasure that you know comes at the cost of human connection. It's the compulsions, the addictions. It's all a form of spiritual slavery, the things that have mastered you, the things that control you. That is a form of slavery. But surrendering to the leadership and the grace of Jesus means being set free from that slavery. It means being bought at a price. It means being brought out of it, rescued, redeemed. And it's the best news in the world. We've been brought into this amazing freedom, freedom to discover our purpose, freedom to be in relationship with God, to enter into his presence as we heard about so powerfully in the worship today. It's incredible. And yet sometimes, sometimes we just decide that things were better back in Egypt. We think, 
actually, things were nice under my old master. At least then I could do what I want, or at least then, you know, I, 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 I might have been racked with guilt, but weren't things easier? When that happens, remember the taste of the bitter herbs. Remember that horseradish taste. Remind yourself of what it was you've been rescued from. Memory is a huge part of the Passover meal. Uh, it was instituted as a way to commemorate the past. And before the bitter herbs in the process, you have a thing called the Majid, which is um, they tell the story of the Exodus. So every year they're reciting the story of the Exodus to one another. That would have happened the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. They would have shared the story of the Exodus together. So when Jesus is giving his longest explanation of his death and his resurrection and what that, happens, uh, what that means, it happened in the context of them remembering everything that God had done previously to rescue his people. It's so important to remember everything that God's done for you, to speak to yourself, to tell your soul, this is what's done. This is the freedom that I've been won into. This is what I have been rescued from. You know, the, there's a reason in that lyric, um, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. We were wretched before Jesus. Remember that wretchedness. Don't be tempted to go back. You've been freed from that. Jesus has given you your freedom. Actually, that has no control over you. The sin that used to entangle you has no say over you anymore. You've been freed from spiritual slavery. And yet, we wonder, hey, it wasn't so bad. Grab hold of the freedom. And remember, this, this is not whipped cream. <laughs> this is bitter, bitter herbs. So, we've got the unleavened bread, freedom from physical slavery. We've got the bitter herbs, freedom from spiritual slavery. And then we've got the lamb, which was the part after the, uh, the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. They, they got to eat the lamb together and they used the blood to paint the doorposts of their houses. And they would have glasses of wine in every Passover Seder to remember the blood of the lamb, which to us, represents freedom from death. Because the faith of Moses wasn't just putting on a meal. It was applying the blood of the lamb that they killed for the meal, putting it over the doorpost so that the angel of death might pass over them. It was a lamb without blemish. It was blood on the doorway. It was a sign of belonging. And because of that sign of belonging, because of this blood over the doorpost, it was, they knew, actually, these are the people of God, and death passed over them. They were set free from the death and judgment of God at that time. And that was what was remembered every Passover by killing a lamb and drinking wine, that because of a sacrificed lamb, they were spared from death. There are four cups, in, uh, four cups of wine in a Passover meal. And the one that we know about, the one that Jesus passed around, was the third. And that is the one traditionally in Passover meals that represents that blood over the doorposts. It was in that cup that every Jewish person in that room would have known. So this is where we remember the blood being painted over the doorposts. That was when he said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Not the lamb's blood, but the blood of Jesus. It's a similar principle. Uh, Last year, we had a sermon on the Passover and Dan brought in a huge door frame that he put up here and he painted it red and he stepped beneath it and he said, this is what it means. You are covered by the blood of the lamb. And when it's Jesus, you are covered by his blood, which means that you are set free from death, set free from the judgment of God. Jesus is utterly transforming it. Because for Jewish people at that time, it would have been um, regular sacrifices going on and on. One, sacrifice, one sacrificial lamb per household. And he's saying, no, the new covenant is my blood. Once and for all. And that means that if you are covered in my blood, you do not have to die, but you can have eternal life. There's another way to think about it. Because we're not, we don't actually have blood on our door frames. When you take part in communion and you do it as an act of faith, not just as a thing that is done, you're actively taking part in the saving work of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, the first Passover meal didn't happen after they were out of Egypt. It actually happened before. It wasn't just about remembering the victory of God. It was about taking part in it. That Passover meal was a necessary part of escaping uh, the, the death and the judgment of God. And communion, as Jesus instituted it, is not just an act of commemoration, although it is that. It's also an act of participation. It's joining with Jesus in his sacrifice, entering into the covenant that he's won for us. It's taking the bread and the wine and joining with millions of believers around the world and saying, I am covered by the blood of Jesus. We don't have blood over our door frames. We have it in a cup for us to drink. It's saying, I am a part of the people of God. And it's believing that he has the power to save. If you put your trust in Jesus and believe in his salvation power, Jesus promises that you will be rescued from death. He said things like, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven, was another thing he said. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Eternal life and freedom from slavery are yours in Jesus. All you have to do to get this freedom is come to him and ask for forgiveness. That's it. Say, Jesus, I'm surrendering to you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I've screwed up so many times. I'm tangled in sin, but I know that you offer me freedom. And communion is just a way of joining millions of believers around the world and just participating in that salvation power, remembering that this wine represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us when he died for us on the cross. If you want to imitate the faith of Moses when he instituted the Passover, I would suggest take communion regularly, having faith in what it represents for us. We have communion in church. We're going to have it in a bit. But do it in your families. Have it at your small group. 
Take moments in your meals with other Christians to break bread and drink wine together. Pausing to remember everything that Jesus has done for you and knowing that in doing so, it's, it's yet another act of showing that you're putting your faith in the power of Jesus to save you from death, sin, and slavery. And one of the most exciting things about the Passover story is later on after they've kept the Passover meal and um, the, they've been set free, it says many other people went up with them. And you know, God even puts in provisions later on in the instructions for this first Passover meal to welcome in outsiders. He's saying, if you have anyone sojourning with you, they can take part in this. And it says that many other people went up with them when they were set free from Egypt. Which must mean, if you think about it, that Egyptians saw this and understood their God is the true God. Their God is powerful enough to set free an entire nation from slavery. I want in. I want to be with them. It wasn't just Israelites that left Egypt that day. It was a mixed multitude. There were Egyptians in the Exodus, which meant that there were Egyptians wandering in the desert for 40 years. There were Egyptians taking part in the Day of Atonement rituals. And it means they were the descendants of Egyptians that entered the promised land. And actually, I heard a sermon about the Passover recently that said it's more helpful for us as Christians to think of ourselves as the Egyptians joining in with the Exodus than the Israelites themselves. Because before we were not in the people of God, and yet through what Jesus did, one of the things he's explaining in communion is saying other people, like my sacrifice is for all, other people can be brought into the people of God. This Passover now isn't just for Jewish people, it's for all who will believe in him. And we get the promises that were given to Israel. We get the freedom. We get the freedom from slavery. We get the freedom from our past. We get the uh, freedom from death. We were not in the people of God. And then when, through Jesus' rescue, we have been brought into the people of God. We've been given this amazing freedom, but it isn't intended just for you. There are over 5 million people who live in Scotland, uh, which is the part of the UK with the biggest decline in church membership, I read. Less than 9% of the people in Scotland regularly go to church, which um, I think is over 4.5 million people in Scotland who aren't part of the community of God, people who aren't regularly hearing the gospel. Realistically, there are even more people than that who don't know Jesus at all. But there is room in the people of God for all of them. The meal table for our Passover, our communion table, is actually eternally big. And we want to bring people into it. We want to invite them in to this freedom that's been won for us. That's why we have uh, pods, the Path of Discipleship course that we run. That's why we took part in the turning. What amazing news we were hearing from that. That's why we run our youth cafe and our elderly outreach. And we team up with people like Bethany Christian Trust and Save Families for Children. It's because we want to bring people into this. We want to show them the love of God and the freedom that's been won for them. None of this is arbitrary. These are things that we're doing to take the love of God out to the people of Edinburgh. Believe it or not, that's why we're running a comedy night. You might think, oh, it's nice, a comedy night. Come along, hear some free comedy, eat some hog roast. But it's more than that. 
we put this stuff on because we want you to invite people in to the church. We want people to come along, have a great time, eat some good food, meet other people from the community of God, and then hear an introduction to Alpha that makes them think, maybe there is more to life than this. Maybe these people I've met are onto something. And then they'll come back. They'll join our Alpha course. And then ultimately, we want to see salvation fruit. That, that's why we do this. We want to see people saved. We want to see people brought into the people of God, just like we were once upon a time. So who do you want to see joining you around the communion table? Freed from death, freed from sin, freed from oppression and slavery. Jesus chose the Passover to explain his death and resurrection to his disciples because it teaches us so much about the character of God and his plans for his people. Moses' faith led to God staging the second greatest act of rescue in history. If we want to emulate his faith, we need to put our trust in Jesus and the greatest act of rescue in history and to make sure that other people know about what he's done and what he's doing. If the band could come back up, we're going to sing a song before we have communion that celebrates the, the freedom from slavery that we've experienced, the freedom from our past, that celebrates everything that God has done to win us. And as we do so, I just think there are, there are ways we can respond. Actually, I'll, I'll come to that when we share communion. But as we sing, the communion plates are going to be passed out. Um, and I just want to read a bit more about the freedom that we've won from Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You've been brought out of slavery into the family of God. You've been given true freedom. You haven't just been set free from something, you've been set free into the family of God, into his purposes and his plans. Let's celebrate his goodness now. Let's take the bread. And as we eat it, let's just remember what it was we've been rescued from. As you, as you eat it, maybe just think about things that feel like they're still entangling you and ask God for that freedom. Thank him for setting you free and just say, God, I, I need that freedom from this. I know that you've won it. I know that you've won the victory. Yeah, God, we thank you for your freedom. Thank you that you have won us so completely. That when we were helpless in our sins, you lifted us, put us on a rock. You brought us into your family. 
Lord, in areas where we're still struggling, would you make your freedom more of a reality for us, God? We celebrate you, God. We celebrate your freedom. Celebrate that we have been brought into it. Not by anything we've done. Not by anything we deserve. But you just rescued us. And we're going to take the wine in a moment. And as we do that, secure in the salvation of Jesus, knowing that his blood has covered us, just like the Israelites had the blood covering the door, doorways, we know that the blood that he poured out for us was sufficient for all, sufficient for all of our sins. As we do that in that security, let's just lift up our city. Let's lift up the people we know that don't know Jesus, that don't know this freedom, that aren't yet covered by that blood. And let's say, God, bring more people in. Maybe there's someone you're thinking of to invite to one of our events coming up, to our comedy night or whatever. Lift them up. Thank God for his blood that Jesus poured out. And say, God, more. It's sufficient for more people than this. We know it is. Father God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Thank you that his sacrifice has covered all of our sins, has freed us from death, and has given us the promise of eternal life, of eternal freedom. We celebrate your victory today, God. We celebrate your freedom. Would you be at work in this city as you already are? Keep building on that work, God. Keep building, bringing more people into that freedom. We want more, God. We want more of the lost to be brought in. We want more people to join this multitude, God. Your blood is sufficient for all of them, God. So bring them in. Bring them in, God. We celebrate you now, God. We celebrate your sacrifice. Thank you. Thank you.